It's time for politics, and I'm joined online from Wellington by John Moore and Sarah Martin. And in studio, we have the ever wonderful Dr. Phil Ferguson. Good morning to you all. Good morning, Marina, Jamie. Marina, Tata. Mm, how are we all today? Pretty good. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, are you, Sarah and John? Will you be off to the cricket today in about an hour's time? I have to admit, I didn't even know there was any cricket on. Whoa. <laughs> oh, come on, mate. All right, this is this interview's over. I'm just going to hang up now. I'm disappointed. Uh, no, the show must go on. Right, it's... Um, jo- John's on... John's in Wellington right now, as, as the listeners can hear that, you know, he's on holiday, and so are the go- so is the government. They're still away um, doing whatever they're doing, and so it's a perfect time for um, the commentators that have gone back to work and need to write articles to make money uh, to examine the new coalition government. What are they saying, John? Well, probably one of the most interesting articles to come out this week is by former um, National Cabinet Minister Wayne Hope, who... Wayne Mapp, who who is putting forward an argument that this government isn't as radical or as left-wing as certain commentators are projecting it as, Mm -hmm. or in certain uh, left-wing commentators and pundits are hoping for it to be. His argument is that the current uh, Jacinda Ardern government is very much operating within the perimeters of uh, the so-called sort of neoliberal consensus that going right back to the 80s. So a, a more free market, less regulated form of, um, of capitalism. Um, he said this government is very much, uh, yeah, the, the spiritual hairs of, of um, Tony Blair's government in Britain and the former Helen Clark government in, in New Zealand, which basically knocked off the rough, the rough edges of that, of that neoliberal form of of governing an economy, so but but his argument is that this government isn't prepared, by all indications, isn't prepared to step out step outside the perimeters of what goes for orthodox economics. So uh, um, having a, a minimalist state that carries out some intervention in the economy, but the majority economy economy is still privately owned. There's still uh, a strong emphasis on free trade and having as least regulations and at least. Little restrictions in relation to free trade as possible, um, and, and not having, not increasing taxation by any significant degree, um, not renationalising renationalising any resources, and having um, what uh, what nationalised resources there are, having them run more on a on a corporate basis. Um, so his argument is that. Really, that this government isn't fundamentally different to the previous national government. Uh, there will be increases in spending, but the 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 basic sort of um, uh, the, the basic structures that have been in place since the nineteen eighties aren't going to change. Yeah, um, Sarah, welcome back. Um, now, is could they be radical? Do they want to be radical, or is this um, a government? That um, you know, is this always been their ideology, or or are they thinking shit? You know, national still got over fifty percent at the last election. Uh, we don't want to change the status quo so much. We want to gain some of those votes. But if we go really far left and if we go radical, we might even lose some of the votes that we've got now. So if we want a second term, we better keep things pretty much status quo. Yeah, I mean, I think things are kind of. Um 
it's, it's in, in the ba- teetering on the balance, really. I mean, I I agreed with a lot of what Wayne Matt said, which was you know, surprising. Um, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they have set themselves at the core of the of the neoliberalism is they've set themselves an incredibly tight and neoliberal fiscal um, restraints budget. You know, which says that they need to operate under incredibly tight fiscal conditions to. Um, meet the kind of the exigencies of uh, of a neoliberal fiscal framework, which was ve- it's very consistent with what the previous few governments have done. So um, they are pretty trapped in that respect. I mean, even if there are, and I think there are genuinely impulses to do to make pretty st- strong inroads in some of the critical social problems that we're facing at the moment, including housing, um, including um, some you know low wages, some pay problems. I think even if they do have that desire. In this term of government, they are certainly very constrained by that those fiscal frameworks that they put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, I, I'm, I'm personally, I, I think we, you know, it's a wait and see. And I, as someone says, you, you, you determine the nature of their politics by ultimately by the policies they put in, in place. Yeah. Um, so I, I still think it's a, uh, you know, a wait and see game. Um, I think they have the potential to be radical, and I think there's a growing call for. Um, more radical government intervention, state intervention, to fix a lot of these issues. Um, so I think I, I think they will differ from Tony Blair. I mean, Tony Blair was very pro-private markets. Um, I, I don't think we'll be going down seeing large-scale privatisations that Tony Blair favoured or um, private sector partnerships. But, you know, um, they are really stuck for money. Mm-hmm. Um Phil, I mean, one only needs to look at the finance minister to really be able to look at the direction they might go economically. But he might even butt heads with Winston on quite a few things. And that's where, you know, on this whole uh, um, private-public partnership or just, um, you know, uh, that kind of economics. So, um, you know, it was like the writing was always kind of on the wall with the finance minister. But Winston may, you know, put a spanner in the works. Um, may do, yeah. I think that Winston is definitely to the left of Labour economically. Mm. I mean, he's not socially; he's kind of more conservative. But economically, he's t- he's to the left of them. And I think he may well want to leave some kind of um, legacy of achievement of a bit greater level of equality or you know some kind of of reforms that people say oh yeah Winston did Winston Peters is -hmm. is responsible for that so there may be friction there because I I think in terms of the wait and see thing um, like we kind of know what sort of party Labour is you know that it's a manage its attitude is very much managing capitalism Mm-hmm. Like national, and you know, on some things national's a wee bit to the left of Labour, and on some things Labour's a wee bit to the left of uh, of national. So I think there'll be quite limited horizons for this government, and I think that it's quite possible that Winston Peters will push on a few things. Mm-hmm. Do you think if they had a bigger voter base, maybe they could be or would be willing to be a little bit more radical? I think if they had a bigger voter base, what they would say is we don't want to alienate those voters. <laughs> there's always an, there's always an excuse for not for not being yeah more more radical. I mean, the Labour Party today, in terms of I mean, 
in terms of social views they're well to the left of what they used to be. Labour used to be a very conservative party mm. on social issues. Um, they were anti-gay, anti-abortion and all the rest of it. Um, but they're miles to the right of where Labour was economically, you know, um, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And actually they're miles to the right of where the National Party was economically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40 years ago as well. John, do you think they've done a really good job at kind of pulling the wool over everybody's eyes in terms of like the millennial vote and whatnot? Because, you know, to a lot of young people, they do seem quite radical and it is going to be a big change. Yeah, I, th- I think um, uh, when Labour was campaigning, when Jacinda Ardern was campaigning for Prime Minister, I think they consciously wanted to promote themselves as addressing. Uh, uh, the, the kind of concerns that millennials have and, and, and the general population have around issues of inequality, uh, poverty, uh, uh, people's sort of alienation from the whole political process. And so they really did raise expectations you know, that we are, uh, a future Labour government will clean up the rivers, it will uh, uh, centrally focus on uh, concerns around global warming and New Zealand will be a leader on that issue. Uh, um, that um, Jacinda Ardern said the reason she got into politics uh, was around issues of child poverty and she wants to get um, implement policies that get rid of child poverty. So, um, yeah, uh, what what people like Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson subjectively believe, and uh, it's hard to tell um, how much of a personal commitment they do have to getting rid of poverty and child poverty and, and transforming the economy to be more in the interest of the general population. It's hard to tell. But they have held, as Sarah pointed out, and as Wayne Matt points out in his article, they have, they have sort of seriously restrained themselves by holding to a set of fiscal responsibility rules that they've drawn up themselves, mm. which incredibly limits the amount of uh, money they can spend, uh, the, the, the degree they can sort of expand um, the, the, the role of the government and the economy, etc. So um, regardless of whether they consciously pull the wall over people's eyes or not, and all politicians do that to a degree, um, the reality is that there's a huge contradiction between the sort of aspirational politics they are advocating, especially in terms of um, uh, trying to be, make New Zealand a more egalitarian society with, with almost no poverty, um, and the actual economic and uh, fiscal rules that they say they will adhere to, which I, um, which arguably um, makes it almost impossible for them to sort of uh, implement uh, uh, those aspirational policies that they're talking about. Um, Sarah, um, do you think uh, that it's going to be quite an important role for the Greens uh, and, and also, I guess, to a certain extent, um, New Zealand First to hold Labour accountable and keep them on the right path in terms of reducing homelessness and the promises about the rivers and all that other stuff? Or do you think that might, if they didn't do that, that Labour might even just let that slip away like National had in the past? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think definitely there's a role not just for... Um um, the Greens in New Zealand first, but also the unions, um, other aspects of civil society, other activists, poverty activists, equality activists, political activists outside of Parliament to keep these issues really high on the agenda and keep offering alternatives, you know, radical alternatives um, 
and building support for those radical t- alternatives. Because I do think there is a constituency out there and a growing constituency who is interested in um, more radical ways of addressing these problems and who are interested in really strong change and definite change. So absolutely it's the role for um, all of us who are interested in, genuinely interested in addressing those things to um, keep them high and keep them um, in the public agenda and, and keep the pressure on for strong changes in that area. Um, I mean, going back to your um, point earlier, you know, I, Labor has for a number of years um, been convinced by its own data, its own research, its own focus groups that it's not taken that the, the community, the, pub, the voting public, doesn't take it um, doesn't take it seriously on economic matters and doesn't trust it to run the books. Mm-hmm. Which is why they've come out with this incredibly conservative um, fiscal framework. So the whole aim of that is to try and um, neutralise, I think is the language they use, neutralise the potential for that to be seen as a weakness and, and try and grow that centrist vote. Um, you know, if they can succeed in moving the centre left, then there may be opportunities for them to do some more radical stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and, and just going back, you know, whether or not they pull the all over the road. I mean, they have moved pretty quickly on that first year of um, free tertiary study um, for yep. students. Um, so, you know, they have, they have you know, put some money where their mouth is and, and, you know, that's a pretty significant and bold and important change for many people, um, many students and their families having that first year free and hopefully it will be continued. Um, increasing the student allowance has been another good move. Unfortunately, landlords in Wellington are sucking all that up. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they but, are. Um, you know, that that's not all talk. They have done already some, some good things. Yeah. It's funny, you can uh, yell until you're blue in the face about the Fifth Labour government and its surpluses, but people still won't trust the Labour Party with the purse strings. Uh, and just finally on this topic, I want to uh, from, from you, Phil, um, Richard, was his name Richard Horton, uh, a respected editor-in-chief of a medical uh, journal, The, the Lance, uh, pronounced Jacinda Ardern as a Marxist. Do you think he's lost his job yet? Uh... Well, it was an interesting, um, an interesting uh, piece that he wrote. I mean, he's the editor of the Lancet, which is probably the most prestigious, or certainly one of the two most prestigious medical journals in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was writing it not as some kind of, you know, um, overly excited right-wing commentator who thinks that anybody, you know, to the left of Attila the Hun is a Marxist. Um, <laughs> He was writing it from a you know, sympathetic left-wing point of view. He didn't actually say she was a Marxist. He said that the ideas, or one of the ideas that she was talking about, showed that Marxist ideas were becoming, um, were interesting people, were becoming relevant again, and that something that she said reflected that rather than saying that she was a Marxist. Um, and he's talking about the health system in in Britain, which is in a, you know has all kinds of problems because of privatisation and just cutbacks and so on. Um, so I think it, it made sense for him to use that propagandistically, but I don't think his article tells us much about. Oh, and and I think his article reflected you know the fact that 
more people are talking about socialism and the word socialism is bandied about a lot mm. more but I don't think it, you know he's actually saying anything about the New Zealand government being <laughs> being Marxist although yeah. you know a few people like Cameron Slater and um, and David Farah seem to seem to think that it is, which would be very amusing for Marxists, <laughs> I'm think, sure. I think uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right, we better move on to the state of Tereo. Um You've been hearing a little bit lately in the news, um, and especially from uh, Professor Paul Moon. I seem to hear that uh, name uh, bounded about a lot when it comes to Tereo. Uh He's making claims in his new book, Killing Tereo Māori, that uh, New Zealand's indigenous language, um, Tereo Māori, is facing extinction. Um, and you know, is, is he right? Is uh, is the government doing enough? Is um, is Maldivian doing enough um, to not only let the language survive, uh, but make it um, you know uh, make it viable in in, in, in this day and age? Uh, make, make learning it attractive uh, and something that people in, in New Zealanders feel passionate about and want to do. Or uh, is it just going to to, to die and, and fade away? John? Um, yeah, so Professor Paul Moyne has put out this book arguing that uh, um, Tereo Māori is facing extinction in this country. And um, it seems, on one level, it seems a, a ludicrous uh, um, statement to make. We've got uh, uh, two Māori um, television stations now. Uh, we've got um, Māori and non-Māori students uh, throughout the country um, have been uh, learning the language for decades now. Um, um, we've even got, you know, pop music songs being put out in Tereo Māori as well. But if we if we step back from all those appearances of of the language, the Murray language um, being alive and, and, and people taking it up on an increasing basis, and look at some of the hard statistics and some of the statements from experts, um, it seems like the language is in crisis. So, for example, in 2010, the Waitangi Tribunal said the Murray language is in crisis, and the government was not doing enough to keep it alive. It said that Tereo was dying and needed life support. And um, uh, previously, um, the first Māori language commissioner, uh, Sir um, Timoti Karatu, um, also said that the language was in a state of crisis and said that there was apathy, apathy pervading the whole of the Māori world and the language is its victim. Um, what One of the arguments... so. The argument can be that is the government doing enough? And Professor Moon's argument is that, well, the government is doing a lot, but is its approach the correct way to actually keep a language alive? And he looks at case studies such as like in Ireland and Wales, where attempts to um, keep um, Indigenous languages alive there through significant um, government intervention and, and haven't worked, uh, that the, the, the majority of people in those countries haven't. Um, taken their indigenous language to heart and, and aren't using it on a daily basis. So, um, again, uh, another academic who, who talks about Maori language being the state of crisis, Victoria University of Wellington's Professor Rawinia Higgins, um, said that statistics show that Maori people uh, live outside of the language and choose not to see the relevance of the language to themselves in their daily lives. So, um, there's been lots of studies to show that 
um, even amongst students who are um, in immersion courses, um, uh, learning te reo Māori, once they step outside the classroom and once they return to their family home, say, um, they're not using that language, they revert back to English. And the argument is that if, you, if, if, if a language purely becomes an academic pursuit mm. and a ceremonial um, um, sort of uh, um, structure to use and say on marae, um but is not used on a daily basis, then that language becomes ossified and effectively um, starts to die in a, in, a, in a very sort of rapid period. So there are strong arguments, even though Professor Paul Moore is a very controversial figure and disliked by a uh, number of, say, Pakeha liberals and Māori academics, certainly there are a lot of uh, other experts on the Māori language from the Māori world who seem to sort of back up his thesis. Mm-hmm. Sarah, I wonder, because of course, um, well, I guess one of the big reasons why um, this speaking throw was in decline was urbanisation um, through the 50s and the 60s, um, and the fact that, you know, uh, kids weren't allowed to speak it at schools. I wonder if you strengthen the regional economies uh, and people don't necessarily leave um, the areas in which they're born and the areas where throw might be a little bit stronger in the, in, in the rural areas. Um, where they might be learn- teaching it at home. I, won- I wonder if um, that would help the language survive in some way. Mm, that's a really good idea, Jamie. I mean, that's a good point. And, um, perhaps that could be you know, one tool in a, in a suite of many that um, we, we throw at this problem. Because, I mean, I certainly think it, it, it would, it's critical that we save that language. It's a beautiful language and it's a, um, a unique language here and you know we are all enriched by by having more languages um, and learning more languages and you know it's it's sad and concerning to hear that um, all the efforts so far are not having a broad effect um, it could still you know I, I think we need to do more I think there's always um, the case for more I certainly support um, compulsory compulsory tereo in primary schools and mm-hmm. my kids uh, are taught it to a certain extent in Wellington um, in a way that they weren't in Dunedin um, and I think there needs to be more of that um, obviously that's a long term plan you have to train a whole lot of teachers to be able to do that first um, but I think we should be taking whatever opportunity we can to celebrate and use one of our um, three official languages um, so yes investing in, in that kind of the regions where there are some more more fluent speakers um is one way investing in education uh, promoting it wherever we can including on the radio good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you know there, there will be a, it could take a couple of generations there are I mean I, I, I'm not a linguist but I know there um, are some young Māori some, um, who speak beautiful fluent Māori and hopefully they're speaking it in their homes um, to their to their tamariki, um, and I'm not. You know, I don't think we should give up yet. I, I think we should uh, find alternative ways and, and look broadly at what we can do, broadly and deeply at what we mm. can do. Um, Sarah made the point, Phil, that um, you know, a couple of generations, hopefully, things will change. Um, and you know, if you if you look at the internet and look at any article when they talk about Taro, you do often get old Anglo-Saxon. <coughs> 
people, white people, just going, well, it's useless. It's not going to do anything for me in this day and age, so, so why should I bother? Um, but really, it's not really about them either. Yeah. Anyway, it's about the next generation, uh, and they can all go to hell. Um, so, you know, it, it is about getting in there young and early now, but how do we counter that argument? Um, because that argument has the influence now. Yeah, I I think it's a really, really difficult one because the case that I'm most familiar with is actually the Irish one. Mm. And in the south of Ireland, it wasn't simply the government promoting the language of an indigenous population which was an ethnic minority. It was actually the language of the Irish people. And yet, despite everything that the government did, and so, for instance you had to be able to speak, you had to have the, the school leaving certificate, you, have, you had to pass Irish to mm-hmm. get the leaving certificate, wow. you had to be able to speak Irish to have a job in the public sector. Wow. And all kinds of things were done to you know, promote the, the, the Irish language, and yet, effectively, it's probably in a similar situation to what Māori and New Zealand is. Mm-hmm. So everything that the state did um, in in the south, where it was the you know the official language, mm-hmm. um, and so on, um, most people don't don't speak. Oh, and it's it's um, it was compulsory in school. Everybody learnt it in school, like but primary school, high school. They just forget it. They don't use it conversationally. But they afterwards. don't use it conversationally when they go home because yeah. they're watching television programs yeah. in English. Mm. Um, you know, back in the in the sixties and uh, onwards, and now, of course, with the internet, they're English. They're going to the cinema, English. They're listening to music. You know, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. English, and so you're up against really, really difficult problems. And I, and it, it and in the south of Ireland, they have areas, gold-topped areas, where which people are encouraged to move to, and where. They get a whole lot of funding from the government, and those areas are purely Irish speaking. You know, uh-huh. like Irish is the day-to-day spoken language. But those areas are tiny. Yeah, they only exist in about three or four parts of the of the south, and they're they're just small areas in particular counties. Um, yeah, so it's really really difficult. In the north, the Irish language took off a bit because during the conflict there. Um, between a section of the population and the British state, people in jail started speaking it because the yeah. warders couldn't, un- you know, couldn't then understand what they were talking about. Nice. And <laughs> and from so IRA people who were English speaking started learning Irish and speaking in Irish, mm-hmm. and then it took off in nationalist areas in the north, and it, it's you know it's been promoted quite a lot. It's probably a bit more vibrant actually in the non in the in the where English is the majority language, Irish is probably doing a bit better than <laughs> than in the the nominally independent part of Ireland. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really difficult to you know to keep, keep it a, a, yeah to keep it alive because we're uh, living in a globalised world, yeah. and if people are going to learn another language, they're going to learn Spanish or French or Mandarin. Yeah. Or you know, or or whatever. Um, I agree with with what Sarah said about you know the uh, the significance of the Maori language, and also we know that people being able to speak more than one language, it's good for your brain, mm. it's good for your for your 
learning. And like in, in places in Europe, people speak three languages. Oh, you know, theoretically, I don't see why people in New Zealand can't speak English, Maori, and something else. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, but, it's good for you know, it's probably um, really good for the older generations anyway, because learning a language at a later part of life yes. and using your brain like that is really good for dementia. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, we're going to have to leave it there. But my one last point uh, to you, Phil, is the fact that um, people, when people from certain parts of Ireland speak English, it sounds like they're speaking Irish to me anyway. So <laughs> I've got no idea what to say half the time. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Phil. They speak uh, highly of you, Jay. Yeah, sure <laughs> uh, th- thank you, Phil. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, thank you so much, John. And we'll be back next week. Cheers. 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 All right. It's time.